Lecture 12, The Reign of William the Conqueror. Welcome back. In our last lecture, we looked at the Norman Conquest, and we saw William, Duke of Normandy, win the Battle of Hastings in October of 1066, and get himself crowned king at Westminster Abbey on Christmas Day. I want to back up a bit now and say a little bit more about the process that got William from Hastings to Westminster Abbey, and then I want to talk about how he went about consolidating his rule over England. It's not a smooth process. There are some significant bumps along the way, and these bumps may have had a big impact in determining how William was going to develop his policies towards the English. He started out thinking he's going to be able to just step in as king and work with the existing system. It turned out he was going to need to exert a lot more pressure than he thought to make the English submit to the new regime. He had to spend the first five years of his reign responding to revolts by Englishmen. And later, he also had some revolts to deal with by Norman followers as well. But he was ultimately successful. How did he do it? He made use of some existing English administrative structures, things we've already talked about. He also created new power bases for his supporters. He tried to bind his supporters very strongly to him by means of a special oath. And he tried to make the most effective possible use of the resources he had in England. And all of these factors together made William just as successful as King of England as he had been as Duke of Normandy. So let's follow William from the battlefield at Hastings on his way to London to get crowned. Of course, London is the big prize. As soon as the Battle of Hastings had been won, William set his sights on London, but he didn't want to head straight for the capital. He wanted to prepare the ground first in a couple of ways. One of these was military, because a frontal assault on London was a very bad idea. It was a walled city. It could have held out for a long time, so William made a big arc to the northwest of London, harrying and burning as he went along. And this process was meant to convince the English that William meant business. And it also isolated London from reinforcements. If you've burned a lot of the supplies in the area immediately around a city, it's hard for that city to hang on in a siege. So that was the military approach. But William was also a very smart politician. At the same time as he was out taking care of the military side of the operation, he's also putting out feelers to prominent English leaders, noblemen and churchmen, to see if they might be willing to come over to his side. And one by one, the English leaders did this. And I think they began to see a sort of inevitability about William's conquest. One of the leaders to submit is Archbishop Stigand, this is that questionable Archbishop of Canterbury that we've talked about before. Also, the Earls of Mercia and Northumbria, Edwin and Morcar, they came and submitted to William. These were actually the brothers who had lost the battle against Harold Hardrada five days before King Harold beat Harold Hardrada at Stamford Bridge. They had fled that battle. But here they are again, accepting William as king. Now, one of the most interesting people to submit to William is actually a man who has a much better claim to the throne, at least by genealogical reckoning, than anybody else in England. And I'm talking about a man named Edgar Atheling. Now, the word Atheling just means prince or possible 
successor to the throne. And he's called Prince because he is the grandson of Edmund Ironside. And thus he's the great-grandson of Athelred the Unready by his first marriage. Now Edgar's story is fascinating because he strikes me as one of the most amazing survivors in English history. Every time you think there's no way Edgar can get out of this mess, he does. Let's back up for a second to the time of the Danish invasions in the early 11th century. Edmund Ironside dies in 1016 and he leaves Knut in control of England. But Edmund Ironside had had a young family, including a son named Edward. This young family was spirited away into exile on the continent. They actually wound up in Hungary, of all places. Little Prince Edward grew to manhood, got married, and produced three children, a boy, Edgar, and two girls, Margaret and Christina. Then, in the 1050s, he's living happily in Hungary all this time, all of a sudden, a messenger arrives from the court of Edward the Confessor in England, asking Edward, the son of Edmund Ironside, to come to England. So he came. The theory is that Edward the Confessor is getting old in the 1050s, and he knows he's not going to have any children, so he's trying to find somebody who can represent the legitimate line of the Wessex dynasty, and that would be Edward from Hungary. But when Edward arrives in England, the king refuses to see him, and nobody knows why. Maybe he changed his mind about naming Edward as his heir. We just don't know. But shortly after arriving in England, Edward died, leaving his son and two daughters behind. One daughter, Christina, became a nun. The other daughter, Margaret, later on married the King of Scotland. The son, Edgar, is treated with honor. He's given the epithet Atheling, which carries with it the implication that he's worthy of succeeding to the throne. But in January of 1066, when Edward the Confessor dies, Edgar is not chosen. Maybe he's too inconsequential, he's too young, he's just a teenager. But nobody thinks of him as a serious candidate for the throne. But in the fall of 1066, after William the Conqueror wins the Battle of Hastings, the English Witan, the English Council of Advisors, at least the ones who are still alive after Hastings, they offer the throne to Edgar Atheling, because otherwise they're going to be ruled by this foreign conqueror, and maybe Edgar Atheling is a better bet. But when it was clear that William had been able to cut off support for London, Edgar submitted to William. Edgar doesn't want to fight for his right to the throne. He's mostly interested in surviving. So a few days before Christmas in 1066, William of Normandy can enter the English capital. He is crowned in Westminster Abbey on Christmas Day. But the coronation doesn't go off perfectly. Because the audience has in it both English speakers and French speakers, William is proclaimed king in both English and French. And the people present take up the shout, and it's apparently so loud that the king's troops who are outside the abbey, they mistake the noise for a riot, uh, and they take action. They set fire to several houses near the abbey. And this is obviously not exactly uh, the way the day was planned to go. But still, William is king. And just like Harold Godwinson, William avoids being consecrated by Stigand. He gets the Archbishop of York to do it instead. Because you can't be too careful about the validity of a consecration. 
So now William is well and truly king of England. What's his first priority going to be? Of course, he needs to shore up the military situation even further. So one of the very first steps he takes is to begin the construction of a great fortress in London, and this becomes known as the Tower of London. And if you go to the tower today, you can still see the original tower that William had built. Now, of course, since then, the tower complex has grown tremendously. Lots of new towers were built, walls and other buildings. But already, with this first tower, the new ruler of England is making a statement because castles were very, very important to establishing control of the countryside in this period. If you have control of a castle, even of a very basic one, just a one tower on a hill, you can control the countryside, and people have calculated this, you can control the countryside around you for about a 10-mile radius. And William built many other such castles throughout England within a very short year, a few short years, and they helped him achieve control over England and maintain it. William also held talks with leading Englishmen. He basically promised that he was going to rule England in the manner it was accustomed to. He didn't have any big plans to change things. And one reason he's saying this is that he's basing his right to rule England on being the person that Edward the Confessor had chosen as his heir. He wants to stress the legitimacy of his rule. So doing things the way they'd always been done in the past, that's a good way to smooth over the rupture caused by the conquest. Let's forget all about the fact that I actually had to come in and take England by arms. So William doesn't make any big changes at first. Writs continue to come out of the Royal Writing Office. They're still written in Old English, which means the same clerks are still at work. The Normans certainly didn't bring anybody with them who knew English, so the same people are doing the, the same jobs. The courts at all their various levels, Shire Court, Hundred Court, they're meeting as usual. And in fact, William felt so secure that the English administration was going to be going on as normal, that he felt perfectly safe going back to Normandy a few months after he was crowned King of England. Normandy was always a bigger worry than England was. There tended to be more trouble from the nobles in Normandy than there was from the nobles in England. So William felt he was needed on the Norman side of the channel. And in fact, this was going to be the pattern for the next century and a half during all this period that English kings also had a lot of land in France. They often have to spend more than half of their time in France because it's a lot easier to leave England to its own devices than to leave the French lands to their own devices. The French lands are going to cause you much more trouble. But William does take some sensible precautions before he leaves for Normandy. He takes English hostages with him to Normandy. These are prominent English figures he wants to keep an eye on. People like Archbishop Stigand, like the Earls, Edwin and Morcar, and naturally enough, Edgar Atheling. William doesn't want them in England, where they could possibly serve as rallying points for rebellion. So they go with him to Normandy. They're not really prisoners, they're just guests who can't exactly leave when they want to. Um, but of course, later on, they do. But the honeymoon period doesn't last, and William has to spend the next five years fighting off various rebellions in England, starting from late in 1067, only a year into William's reign. In the western part of England, a, a shadowy figure named Edric the Wild is on the loose in the border areas between England and Wales. He attracts uh, some significant support. 
And there's also an uprising in Exeter in the southwest. But the most serious uprising happens in the north of England. And this is always where the biggest problems happen. It turns out that William had been right to bring those hostages with him to Normandy. As I said, they don't stay. He lets most of them go shortly after they arrive in Normandy. That was probably a mistake. In 1068, the Earls Edwin and Morcar, they join up with another northern English leader, a guy named Gospatrick. And these three English leaders send feelers out to the Danish king, Swain Estrithson. Swain is related to King Knut, so he has something of a claim to the English throne himself. And the English nobles want Swain to come to England and help them get rid of William. At the same time, the earls also begin to push the claims of Edgar Atheling. Edgar Atheling had gone to Scotland when he was tired of hanging out with William the Conqueror in Normandy. But William found out about this little project. As I've said, it's hard to keep a secret in the 11th century. And William responded vigorously by campaigning throughout England, especially by making a bold northward thrust up to York and then down south to Cambridgeshire. And all along the way, he's building castles and he's demanding the submission of English leaders. Wherever he goes, he does this. And this is a very effective method. He's showing the flag. He's saying, I'm going to show up and I'm going to make sure that you do what I want. And it works, at least temporarily. The rebels in the north are intimidated for the moment. Okay. But early in 1069, an incident in the far north in Durham sets off a major revolt. A Norman official is sent up to Durham to take control there. And somehow he gets involved in a piece of local unpleasantness. Uh, I've said before, things in the north can be a bit different. It's a very old feud, and he ends up in the middle of it, and he's set upon in a house and burned to death. And this is the trigger for a widespread revolt, and it quickly spreads south to York. Now, Edgar Atheling is getting ready to move south from Scotland, but he's not fast enough for William. The king moves north again at a breathtaking pace, and he retakes the city of York. The situation gets more serious, though, a bit later in the year because the Danish king, Swain Estrithson, finally acts on the earlier call for help that the English nobles had sent him. Just like the Danish kings in the early 11th century, Swain is hoping to capitalize on any pro-Danish feelings that might still be out there in the north and east of England. So he sends one of his sons to England with a fleet. This fleet anchors in the Humber River. Edgar Atheling and other northern magnates join in the revolt. York is retaken from the Normans. York is changing hands in this period at a dizzying pace. The local peasants around York welcome the Danish soldiers as expected. They seem to have looked on them as liberators. There are repercussions in Scotland as well. I mentioned Edgar Atheling being in Scotland. Well, now that things are looking more positive for Edgar, the Scottish king, Malcolm, decides maybe it would be a good idea to marry Edgar's sister, Margaret. I think King Malcolm is hoping that he's marrying the sister of the future king of England. Now, it didn't work out that way, but ultimately this marriage is going to be very important in English history. We'll see that in the next lecture because it would produce a very important queen of England. 
But let's go back to the revolt in 1069. It looks bad for King William. He has a Danish force on English soil. His rival for the English throne, Edgar, is now related by marriage to the Scottish king. But William is up to the challenge. He responds immediately. He heads north. Now, along the way, he engages in a deliberate policy of destruction. He tells his troops, destroy all the crops, burn down the houses, destroy everything in your path. They kill every male they come across. They kill all the livestock they can get their hands on. It's basically like Sherman's march to the sea in Georgia during the American Civil War, but worse. And it gets an appropriate name. People refer to it as the harrying of the North. The king got to York and he retook the city rather easily. And then he ordered his troops to fan out across the countryside of Yorkshire to carry out the same kind of destruction that they'd engaged in on the way north. And this destruction is so profound that its effects are still visible two, two decades later in Doomsday Book. This is a great survey of English lands that we're going to be talking about in the next lecture. And you can see the results of the harrying of the north in that book. Well, there are still some rebels holding out near Chester in the northwest. So the king heads to Chester next. It's winter at this point, usually not a time when soldiers in the Middle Ages expect they're going to be fighting. You, you usually take the winter off. And William's soldiers are exhausted. They almost mutiny on the way to Chester. But the king somehow rallies them. He has amazing powers of leadership. And they get to Chester before the rebels are ready to meet them. And that's effectively it. That's the end of the English side of the revolt. The Danes are still on the loose, but they're discouraged at this point. And the king manages to pay them off. He pays the Danes a bribe, and the Danish fleet in the Humber ups anchor. So essentially, you've got a Norman king paying Danegeld. Kind of ironic. William had just come through a relentless, tiring campaign, and it seemed a good trade-off to him. But remember what Kipling said about Danegeld. William was not rid of the Dane this time either. The next year, in 1070, King Swain comes back. This time, he's leading his fleet in person. And Edwin and Morcar join in also. The Danes meet up with an English rebel force. They're led by an English thane, an English nobleman in Lincolnshire named Hereward. Together, this rebel force attacks Peterborough Abbey in Northamptonshire and sacks it. It's got a Norman abbot at this point, which maybe justifies the sack a little bit. But the monks of Peterborough, they remember this attack for many years to come with horror. Now, William responds by bribing Swain to go home again. And Swain does go home again. This leaves William free to go after Hereward. Hereward takes refuge in the Isle of Ely. Now, remember Ely from our discussion of Knut's reign. This is the church where Knut was charmed by the singing of the monks. Well, you'll also remember it's a marshy area. You're best off getting around by boat in that part of the country. It's a pretty good place to hole up and disappear. So William surrounds the rebels, and he tries to starve them out. And there are wonderful stories about Hereward's adventures during the siege. Supposedly, he disguised himself as a poor potter. He dressed in poor clothes and actually appropriated somebody's pots. And he made his way into King William's camp to gather intelligence. There are all sorts of stories like this. 
Later on, very similar stories are going to get attached to the Robin Hood legend, and we'll come to that later in the course. But despite all of Heroward's heroic efforts, most of the rebels surrender after a brief siege. Somehow, Heroward melts away, and nobody really knows what happened to him. Of the other rebels, we do know uh, something. Edwin is betrayed by his own followers and killed. Morcar is captured and imprisoned, and he's in prison for the rest of William's reign. But the bottom line is that William once again defeats his enemies. He wins by using a combination of methods, and he always seems to know just the right mixture of elements. You need a little bit of ruthlessness, a little bit of bribery. You need to know who you pay off, who you crush. I think that's really the lesson of this great northern revolt. You have to conclude William will do whatever it takes to maintain control of England. And from this point on, the English mostly get the point. They're largely loyal to the king from this time on, including Edgar Atheling. He settles down quietly to life as a member of the comfortable classes. I think William quite rightly concludes that Edgar isn't much of a threat. In fact, Edgar later becomes very good friends with William's oldest son, Robert. The two go off on crusade together, and after a very long life of getting in and out of scrapes, I think largely because he's not very dangerous, people don't think he's much of a threat, Edgar Atheling dies in his bed in around 1125, in his mid-70s. The remaining revolts of William's reign are actually led by Normans, not by Englishmen. And the king is just as good at crushing those. And I'll talk about one of these Norman revolts in a moment. For now, though, let's think about what the Northern Revolt meant to William. It does seem to have caused him to rethink his methods of ruling England. He had been trying to rule through the existing structures, and to a large extent, that continues. The Shire Courts, the Hundred Courts, they keep meeting as usual. But he does start bringing in more of his own people. His writs start being issued in Latin rather than English. Clearly, he has gotten rid of the English clerks. He's brought in Norman ones. He also begins systematically replacing English bishops and abbots with Norman ones. He wants churchmen in place who he feels comfortable working with. But undoubtedly, the biggest changes take place with regard to the ownership of land. At first, William hadn't even really carried out any systematic confiscations of English land. He had taken away land from Englishmen who were actually in the field against him at Hastings. But people who had stayed out of the battle, they had kept their lands up till now. After the Great Northern Revolt, William gets a bit more hard-nosed. He starts confiscating lands of the English magnates and redistributing it to his Norman supporters. Now, there's a lot of controversy among historians about just how devastating a change this is, and I think it kind of depends on how you look at it, and particularly on where you are on the social scale. Obviously, for the English elite, it's a disaster. They're almost completely shut out of power, since land is the source of power. Virtually overnight, the old elite goes out, the new elite comes in. But these lands that were confiscated, they had people living on them, paying rent to their owners, owing labor services. And a lot of the time, those people just stayed exactly where they were. And instead of paying rent to a guy named Wolfgar, now they're paying it to a guy named Robert. It doesn't necessarily make a huge amount of difference to them. 
But the way in which the lands were distributed, that had long-term consequences for English history. King William gave out lands to his followers in a rather haphazard fashion. Often, he simply made them the heirs, the successors, of various English nobles who had forfeited their lands. And these lands tended to be widely scattered. They don't form compact, contiguous lordships. That's much more the way it worked in Normandy, not in England. And the result is that the nobility in England doesn't have the same kind of secure, territorial power bases that Norman lords do. And this has several implications for English history. First, it means English lords are not going to find it as easy to defy the king as Norman lords can. They, they couldn't rely on a big block of territory that they can hold against the king. This sort of thing is much more possible in Normandy, and this is one reason why Normandy is more of a problem than England is. The second result of this scattered distribution of lands is that nobles have a stake in things that are happening all over the country. They have kind of a national interest. And this is going to make a difference in the development of English politics and also in several major revolts in English history. And we'll get to that in future lectures. For now, let's get back to William the Conqueror and his plans for English lands. As I've said, most of the lands he confiscated were scattered estates. But there are several places where the king does create large territories for one particular magnate to rule. The two most important places he does this are at Chester in the northwest and Durham in the far north. And in both of these areas, it's for strategic reasons. He's worried about enemies on his borders. In Chester, it's the Welsh. In Durham, it's the Scots. And he makes the calculation that he'd rather risk having a lord with a pretty secure power base if he's going to be able to defend the country. So he sees it as better to have somebody on the spot because he can't possibly be on the borders all the time. Now, these compact lordships are going to have a long future in English history. They're called Palatinates, and they're ruled over by an earl in Chester and a bishop in Durham. Now, there's one more important thing to say about what William does with land in England, and this touches on a big debate among historians. The debate is whether William introduces feudalism into England. Now, feudalism is one of those concepts that has so many problems with it that historians would really like to kill it, but it just won't die. In essence, feudalism is about fiefs. Fiefs are lands that somebody accepts from a lord in exchange for some kind of service, usually military service. The king gives you a piece of land. In exchange, you show up and fight in his army when he summons you to do so. Now, it's really the ism part of feudalism that historians don't like because they recognize that it was never a system. It's not systematic at all. Not all land was held in this way. Okay. Historians are divided over how important fiefs were before the conquest. But they, I think the important thing to stress is that William the Conqueror does increase the importance of fiefs in England. But while William is in the midst of this uh, whole-scale uh, redistribution of lands, he has to face rebellion on several fronts from those very supporters that he's giving land to. Remember I said the English had learned their lesson? Well, the Normans had not. And in 1075, there's a major conspiracy. It's led by the Earl of Hereford and the Earl of East Anglia, both of whom are Normans. And the grievance is simply that the king isn't giving them enough favors, you know, not confirming them in their lands, their offices. And unlike the English revolts, this one is thus really entirely personal. The plot is actually hatched at a wedding feast 
Now, the reason I mention this revolt, it doesn't amount to much militarily, is because it results in the last execution of an Englishman for treason in William's reign. Now, how is this? It's a Norman revolt. Among the wedding guests, where the plot is devised, is an English nobleman named Waltheof. And the reason he's there is that he has married the niece of William the Conqueror. And somehow, poor Waltheof gets swept up in the conspiracy. Now, when word of it gets out, Waltheof is actually the first to surrender. I don't think his heart was ever in the rebellion. But the king decides that he's going to treat the rebels separately according to their uh, their nationality. Normans will be dealt with by Norman law, English by English law. The penalty for treason under English law is beheading. So the Norman lords, they get off with the loss of their lands and liberty. Waltheof is executed. So justice in England is not yet entirely even-handed. Still, this episode shows that William had his problems with his Norman supporters just as much as he did with his English subjects, if not more so. So what's the solution? William tried to a certain degree to increase the authority of the crown with respect to the great lords. And he did this by articulating the principle that he's at the top of a hierarchy of landholding, everyone else comes underneath him. In effect, William is making it clear that all the land in England is held of the king. The next layer of landholders under the king are the so-called tenants-in-chief. Tenants-in-chief are people who hold their lands directly of the king. He is their immediate lord. They're accountable directly to him for their military service. Now, under the tenants-in-chief are people called subtenants. These are people who owe service to the tenants-in-chief, who owe service to the king. So there's essentially a pyramid with the king at the top. This is a simplification, but broadly it holds. But William injects a new kind of discipline into this feudal structure. And the clearest expression of this came in August of 1086, towards the end of William's reign, with the so-called Salisbury Oath. This is an occasion when William gathers all the great landowners of the country at Salisbury, and he demands a personal oath of loyalty. And he wants you to swear the oath whether or not you're a tenant-in-chief. That is, whether or not you hold your land directly of the king or whether there's another lord in between you and the king. William is making it clear that he's the king of all the landowners, not just of the men who are his own vassals directly. And this had very important ramifications. In the normal feudal way of things, your loyalty is to your lord, full stop. If your lord rebels against his lord, you rebel with him. But William at Salisbury is articulating the claim that everybody needs to be loyal to the king, not to their own lord one step higher up in the feudal chain. William is trying to short-circuit the normal channels of rebellion that are so much of a problem in Normandy. And in fact, it does prove far less common in England for the lords uh, at the bottom to follow their lords into revolt against the king. Part of the reason is these, uh, these scattered lordships all over the country. But part of it is also that the English kings are asking for the loyalty of all their subjects. What we're seeing is the creation of a very strong kingship. In contrast to what's going on in France at the time, there the king is just having to fight to survive against his nobles, the English kings start from a presumption of strength. Now, of course, they're building on a strong foundation laid by the Anglo-Saxon monarchy, but a lot of the credit goes to the personality of William the Conqueror, 
When William dies in 1087, he is actually in Normandy. Nevertheless, the English accept his son, William II, as king without a whisper of opposition. That's quite an achievement for a foreign conqueror with, let's admit it, a dubious claim to the throne. In our next lecture, we'll look at the implications of the Norman conquest for the mass of English people on the ground as they try to come to grips with conquest and create a new people out of the English and the Normans.